Hello and welcome to the Try Talking Sport podcast hosted by me, Joanne Murphy. Whether you are an athlete, adventurer, endurance enthusiast or simply have an interest in sport, you have come to the right place for inspiration, encouragement, motivation and plenty of entertainment. Well, how are we all? A big warm welcome to all of our new subscribers and listeners over the past few weeks and apologies to those of you who eagerly awaited an episode two weeks ago but never got one. As you will have seen from my socials, I was at the end of my American adventure and decided to take some time out in Vegas on my way home and have some fun after the whirlwind week of the Ironman 70.3 World Championship in Utah. It was an incredibly busy week in Utah and I couldn't make the time zones or the schedule work for an episode, but I can guarantee you that this episode will 110% make up for it. Not only is it a brilliant show, but it's 90 minutes long, so it's like two episodes in one. It's a win-win situation. I'm home two weeks now from the States, having worked at Ironman California and the Ironman 70.3 World Championship after the last episode, before making my way back to Ireland. California was class. I got to enjoy some downtime in Sacramento before race day, and it was great to wander and adventure about the place for a couple of days. I got to work with Mike Riley for the final time on race day in California, as he begins to wrap up an incredible career on the Ironman finish line later this year. It was lots of fun, and I also got to work with the fabulous Dave Lauterette on the mic. The crack was mighty. Huge thanks to race director Tom Cotton and his team for the warm welcome in Sacramento. The weather turned a little chilly on race day, which started to prepare me for a few pretty cold days in Utah. Brr. The week in St. George was like a whirlwind. It was jam-packed with activity, and aside from the days of race announcing, there were so many side events that I got to host, which was really cool. Speaking of cool, that cold snap of weather in Utah saw me having to panic shop for warm clothes for the race days and for the welcome banquet and banquet of champions, as all I had in my case were the flittery summer dresses I had worn in Kona. So, jeans, tops and a woolly cardigan were all purchased in a panic. Poor Paul Kay and Robson Lindbergh waited an hour in the car whilst I tore around Cole's department store, sweating, trying to find suitable clothes. Whoops. But it all worked out okay in the end. The racing in St. George was incredible on both days. Being so close to the action was class. It was so fast. And whilst I was pretty nervous to host the post-race press conference on Friday with our female champions, it was lots of fun. A huge thank you to the World Championship team and the wider Ironman team for the incredible opportunity of a lifetime to have such an amazing announcing adventure in America. It really was a dream come true to be part of the World Championship team this year, something I will always be grateful for. I've been pretty busy since I got back from the US trying to make up for some of the time away and also work on some developing projects, which is very exciting. This past weekend, I hosted the Triathlon Ireland Awards Night in Dublin and it was such a great night. Everyone was in superb form and the crack was mighty. It was great to meet and reconnect with so many people on the night from across the country who I had briefly maybe met at an event or I have been racing with on Zwift or indeed have been part of the Park Tri community keeping me sane during those COVID days. It was lovely to meet some of our podcast listeners too. Thanks for coming up to say hello on the night. I have a busy few weekends ahead now in the lead up to Christmas with Gymnastics Ireland. And speaking of gymnastics, how incredible was Rhys McLenaghan at the World Championships in Liverpool, Ireland's newest world champion on pommel. What a superb athlete and remarkable role model for people across Ireland. With his courage, commitment, ambition, dedication to his craft and to achieving his goals, it's no surprise he is a world champion with the world now literally at his fingertips. This weekend, 
I have my first weekend off since August, so I'm taking a trip to Westport for the Cycling Connacht Awards on Saturday night and the Women's Gravel Spin in Ireland ED on Sunday morning. I have to say I'm looking forward to getting back on the gravel bike and to the next few weeks of adventures. I'm trying to get back into a training routine since I came home and it has failed miserably. So I'm hoping this spin on Sunday might help to kickstart my mojo and maybe light a fire under my training. I think it's time to set some goals for 2023. Speaking of goals for 2023, if Kona is on your to-do list or you just simply want to be inspired, be sure to check out the brilliant race reports on the Try Talking Sport website. Or if you fancy submitting a race report capturing the details of your own racing at home or abroad this year, pop me an email to trytalkingsport at gmail.com. As we continue to build out the performance hub on the site, you'll see lots more articles and advice popping up. So go check it out now. As we get nearer to Christmas, we also have our fitness challenge and our Christmas cracker promotion getting underway very soon. Be sure to stay tuned to our socials for the opportunity to win some great prizes across the month of December. The fitness challenge is sure to keep you motivated to move on those dark nights in the depths of winter when all you want to do is curl up on the couch with a good book or an episode of something random on Netflix. If you were looking for some Christmas gifts and deals for Black Friday, be sure to keep an eye on the website as we share information on the best gifts and deals for you or for the favourite athlete in your life this Christmas. If you want to get a head start on the gifts, pop over to our fabulous partners, Nuasan, and use the code TTS15 to get a 15% discount on their online store at www.nuasan.com. They have lots of great gift sets and products on the site. Now to this week's episode with the man that is best known as Crowey. Australia's Craig Alexander, three-time Ironman world champion and two-time Ironman 70.3 world champion whose stellar professional career spanned over two decades. From his early days in triathlon, he blazed a trail in the sport across all distances, becoming a household name worldwide. He was the first athlete to win both the Ironman and Ironman 70.3 world championship in the same year, in 2011, is the recipient of an Order of Australia medal for service to sport and the community and earlier this year became an Ironman in Australia Hall of Fame inductee. One of the greatest ever triathletes, his softly spoken and gentle manner give no indication of the level of tenacity, commitment and determination it took for him to reach the top of the sport and to stay there for many years. From his first professional race in 1995 right through to his retirement in 2014, Craig found another gear, another level and was not afraid to dig deeper and deeper into the Hurt Locker to succeed in a sport that he is eternally passionate about and grateful for the career and success it has afforded him. Now retired from professional sport, he still races, albeit sparingly, and he maintains a very high level of fitness. In 2019, he won the Australian Long Course Championship aged 46, 20 years after capturing his first national championship title. He spends his time now with his family, supporting them and many of his children's sporting endeavours as both a father and a coach. He is an author, broadcaster and, shortly after retirement from professional sport, he launched his own training, health and lifestyle brand, Sansego, which keeps him busy. As well as being an ambassador for a variety of events, brands, charitable causes and foundations, his passion for triathlon and for sport knows no bounds. This is a super chat with a simply incredible person. The show is longer than normal, so maybe fill the kettle rather than just making one cuppa and go chill out on the couch whilst you are inspired, educated and motivated by one of the all-time greats of triathlon and of sport. Welcome to Try Talking Sport, Craig Alexander. Crowy, I'm delighted to welcome you to the show and of course, lovely to see you in person in Kona and Utah twice. How are you? I'm doing good. It's great to see you too, Jay. Yes, it's... uh. We had a little break there, a little sabbatical, but it's great that the events are back and we're all crossing paths again. So 
yeah, we had a fun few weeks. Um, of course, Kona was it's always a fun week, and Utah is just a great place to go as well. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. I think I'm still trying to recover from the excitement of the racing and the jet lag. We both probably had similar uh, time zones and time differences and travel times to get home. Obviously, me to Ireland and you back to Australia. How has your jet lag been? You know, coming back this way from the US mainland is a lot easier. Um, going west, going over was tough. Um, yeah, the whole week in Utah, right? I just had trouble sleeping. It's just, it's always tough. I mean, I think I've made the flight from from Australia to the US, I don't know how many times over the last 20 years, a lot. Um, and of course, I was in Europe earlier this year as well in um, in August. And I actually, I think, I think Utah was my fourth trip to the US. So as much as you get used to traveling, as you know, you never really get used to it. Um, no one's ever been able to tell me a foolproof jet lag remedy. I don't know. I think one or two Guinness and then uh, in the bed might might help, might knock you out. But yeah, no, I mean, coming back this way, I was fine. I just slipped back into the old time. And of course, you could have a whiskey chaser, a little bit of Jemison on the back of the Guinness. Yeah, why not? Might help. <laughs> Do you get nervous during race week, even though you're not racing at the World Championships? I get excited now that I'm not racing, but obviously I don't have uh, as much skin in the game as I used to. So um, it's more enjoyable this week. I, I kind of, I really soak up the atmosphere more than when I was racing now um, and enjoy it. And I always find race week more enjoyable than it used to be. But then, of course, on race day, you, as you know, once an athlete, always an athlete, you wish you were out there. Of course, you don't miss the six or seven or nine or 12 months of lead up work. But on race day, you're jealous and envious of all the other athletes out there doing what we all love to do as athletes. And um, and it's a different feeling afterwards as well. When These days when I'm at races and the, and the race is over and my obligations are finished, I like to to get home as soon as possible. I think, you know, that basking in the afterglow, that's for the athletes, um, the ones who have raced. And, um, you know, I like to get out of there. So, but it's fun. I mean, it's so good to just be involved at the races, watching several thousand very fit athletes fulfill ambitions, sometimes lifelong dreams and goals of qualifying to race at world championships. And it's always emotional. It's always entertaining. It's just a lot of fun to watch. And it was great to see so many people, to actually physically see people. And I suppose for me, I hadn't been to the States for quite a while. So to reconnect with people in person, you know, that I think was very special for lots of people as well, to kind of have that regrouping and that reconnection with athletes, partners, friends from all over the world. Yeah, I felt it most at Kona because that was the first time. And it was still there in Utah as well, but it was a lot of the same people we'd seen three weeks before. But yeah, Kona this year was just like... It was like a big school reunion where you were just pumped and excited to see everyone and just just really happy to be there. So, I mean, I've always loved Hawaii. I've always loved the big island for, for training or just to be there. But it's certainly something special in race week when you add in all the, uh, I guess, the atmosphere and the emotion and just the feelings of seeing a lot of great friends. It's a special, special time. So, yeah, it was so good. I mean... You were there, you, you felt it, just walking down a lead drive, being at the pier in the morning. At, um, yeah, I'd certainly missed being there. And what were your highlights from Kona this year? If you were to pick one or two highlights, what would they be? On a personal note, just reconnecting with old friends, um, people I used to race against, people I used to train with, um, and just, just a lot of friends in the industry, whether it be in the media or, or people who work at different companies who I've had associations with, just socialising, being around them, 
from, I guess, a, a performance standpoint, I mean, there was so much to like about it. I, I loved Chelsea Sedaro's race. I loved, I actually loved the two, the split, the split races. I loved that the girls got their own day on, on Thursday. You could actually really um, immerse yourself in the women's race and watch the dynamics of it and how it was unfolding. Um, super exciting race. I think when they hit T2, it was still um, a lot of questions to be answered and Chelsea's race was just incredible. Um, and then two days later, all again, I mean, I think the boys had slightly better conditions, although both both conditions were nice. You were there. I think they there was not a lot of wind to report and, and a little bit of a tailwind coming home from Harvey, but just just the competitiveness of the men's race, the, how fast it was, watching the Norwegians do what we've become accustomed to watching them do the last two or three years. Sam Laidlow's race was amazing. Uh, I loved Sebi Kinlay's race for his last race. Tim O'Donnell, after everything he's been through the last couple of years, um, there was just so much to love, you know, on the on the men's and the women's side of the racing. So, no one particular highlight, but but all of those things were were, were just amazing. It just becomes a whole highlight, doesn't it? Really, like the whole week itself becomes. It's almost a blur in one way. It's funny you mention all those things. I'm like nodding my head at you, going, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." But like the whole week is just a blur because it is so busy, and adding in that second day of racing is fantastic but it does actually make it really jam-packed and really um a concentrated week of activity yeah it is it's you certainly notice the shortened week because normally you have the whole week particularly i think things start ramping up usually from the sunday before and you, you roll through the week with all the functions and you know the kids race um usually the press conference on the thursday Having the first race day on the Thursday shortens the week and it does it jam packs a lot in and it's just like sensory overload. But there's just one highlight after the next. You either bump into someone you haven't seen for a while or um, you get a little sound bite of what's been going on in the pro racing or you hear something else. You know, the company's just launched a new product or, or whatever. So it's, it's a lot of sensory overload and almost for the people watching, it's it's you can take a breath and relax on the race days themselves and just enjoy the spectacle. Um, but yeah, phenomenal racing. I mean, the game continues to evolve and change in a great way. And it's just fun to watch. Yeah. And then before we start talking about you specifically, I want to ask you with regards to the Ironman 70.3 World Championship, who had the most impressive performance for you in both the women's and the men's race? Yeah, it's hard to pinpoint um, one performance. But if I had to pick one, I would say Taylor Nibb. I just think she lived up to the hype that, you know, you see someone show a little bit of promise. Obviously, she got a bronze medal last year, and we saw her amazing race in the Collins Cup last year as well, where I think she beat Danny Reef by 18 minutes or something. And granted, Danny was probably not at her best and was building up, but still, for, for an athlete of Danny's class to be not at their best still means they're very, very good. And to, to have that kind of a time deficit certainly caught my attention, but, but then to actually see that that promise and that potential fulfilled and watch that race play out the way it did. It was like, wow, this is um this is special. And every now and again you see performances like that. And and even when she got off the bike, you, you didn't think at any moment she was going to fold either. You just thought, oh, she just looks strong. I know she'd been carrying a run injury early in the year, but all the talk was that her running was back to its best. And yeah, I mean she won a world championship by a big handful of minutes, six or seven minutes in the end. And so for me, that was a great performance. On the men's side, 
Um, well, just Christian. I mean, coming out of Kona, you know, and it was interesting. I had a chat to Mark Allen, and I put I sort of thought that Gustav might that course might suit him a little better, and he he'd won there last year at the seventy point three Worlds. But yeah, M- Mark actually brought me to my senses, and you know, there's a big difference between winning in Kona and finishing third in Kona. You know, one person, the winner, Gustav, leaves the big island content, satisfied beyond all comprehension. Christian leaves the big island with a great performance, a podium finish, a third place, but still hungry for more and fired up. They're two polar opposite mindsets coming into Utah. And I think Gustav might have said as much in the in the press conference. I wasn't at the press conference, but I heard he was sort of saying it was hard to feel that fire after Kona. And it is hard. When you win that race, you, you've you fulfilled a huge ambition. And it's, I think it's human nature. You almost feel a bit of relief and satisfaction. And you're also busier than um, you would normally be. And the third place finisher, whilst a satisfying performance, is not as busy and probably still hungry for more. So um, Christian's performance was amazing. Ben Canute, it, what a great race. Took it up to him. I, it always looked like Christian just was doing enough. Like he, he he played some great cards in that race, was in the front group, and that was by a little bit of good fortune. Aaron Royal went the wrong way in the swim, so that allowed the front group to compress. Christian seized that opportunity like all great athletes do and firmly implanted himself in the front group and then came out of T1 and put the pressure straight on, saw they had a little gap back to Gustav and a few others, and he didn't wait for anyone else to press the advantage. He did it. And pretty much sat on the front of that bike for most of it until Magnus Ditliff, um caught up and then came through on Snow Canyon. But then Christian just looked like he did what he needed to do in the run. He, on the second lap, there was a, like a two or three mile section where he just opened up a minute lead. And it was amazing. But Ben's race was incredible. Great to see him back on a world championship podium after five years. Um, Magnus continues to impress as well. Just one of the sports rising stars. So. A lot of great performances, and I want to show the women a bit more love. I mean, Taylor was amazing, but Paula Finlay's just she's just a classy, consistent performer as well. She looked great all day, and I want to say I think that the women had the worst of the conditions in Utah as well. It was definitely colder, as you know. It was it was freezing cold. It, it wasn't balmy for the men either, but it was certainly a lot colder. They had to, I think, rug up a lot more in T one. I think it impacted a lot more races um, on the women's side. Um, so Paula was just was great. Flora was up there in the mix, as was was Lucy. I think I think Lucy's Kona caught up with her on the second lap of the run, and Emma Pallant Brown was wow. She just tore through that run course and looked like she was hypothermic on the bike and dropped out of contention. But like all great athletes, showed some resilience and hung in there, and then yeah, claimed that final spot on the podium in the last mile. So. Highlights all around on the men's and women's side. It was very exciting. And just to come back to Taylor Nib, she looked like a girl who wasn't afraid. You know, she overtook Lucy two miles into the bike course and she never let up. It's it's like it's like um wasn't it Jackson Landry at the AWA breakfast that um said basically he's not afraid of the big names in sport anymore because he had done so well in a race earlier this year. But it really looked like Taylor Nib was just gunning for it. No matter what happened, she was going to go lead the race. And after that it was it was up to her to lose it. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly how I saw it play out. I mean, it's interesting because as an athlete, you have a physical progression 
and hopefully you have a mental progression that keeps pace with that. So at some point you're physically good enough to compete for big wins and but to close the deal, you've mentally got to have a mindset that enables you to do it as well. And that means having a healthy respect for your competition, but also understanding what you need to do to get the outcome that you're after and and go all in on that. Um, and she did that. Yeah, I saw them at five miles on the bike and she already had just over a minute lead at that point and just the body language of her on the bike coming into this corner we were standing at, aggressive, attacking, um, pedal to the metal, full throttle, uh, and I think that just showed her intention from from the gun. It was, I'm not waiting for anyone. I respect all these girls. They're great athletes. But she had a plan. Her and her coach had a plan, and she executed it beautifully. And then you look at them turning around last weekend. Some of them were in Bermuda, and then Emma Pallant was in South Africa. Like, they just turned around some more great racing. But I want to move on to talking about you, Chloe, because that's why we're here. But it was a nice intro to have a little <laughs> recap on the World Championships and the fun that we had over the past few weeks. So look, you've had a stellar career in sport. It's been well documented and celebrated all over the world. Um, three-time Ironman World Champion, two-time Ironman 70.3 World Champion, first athlete to win both the Ironman 70.3 World Championship and the Ironman World Championship in the one year in 2011. And of course, setting that blisteringly fast course record in Kona that year. Um, they're just some of the results on your sporting CV. And that's only the tip of the iceberg when you consider how much success you had at every single distance of triathlon at events and races all over the world. So, Chloe, the question I have for you first about your own career is where did this love of sport come from? I just always was a competitive person. And I think like most kids growing up in Australia, we have a a great climate. We're outdoors a lot. Um, it's part of the school curriculum. Early on, you you, you play sport. Uh, yeah, and I, I mean, my main sporting love growing up was soccer or football, um, as we call it. I played from the age of six or seven until I was 20 years of age and, and actually had aspirations of being a professional footballer, but that didn't pan out. And yeah, just played a lot of sports growing up. Played a little bit of golf, a little bit of tennis, a little bit of cricket. Um, played some water polo in high school, uh, but soccer was my main game. Um, I loved that, and I always was attracted to endurance events, though, or, or not so much endurance. I mean, in high school, I was more a, a short or middle distance runner. I used to like the two hundred, the four hundred, eight hundred, uh, and I knew I, I, I think I was pretty good at it. I, from soccer, I mean, I played soccer at a quite a high level, and as you know. You do a lot of fitness. It's a game you need a lot of aerobic conditioning. You're probably not running sessions the way you do as a triathlete, but there's a lot of speed, there's a lot of agility, and just a lot of aerobic conditioning. So I think each year at school when we'd have the athletics carnival or cross country, I'd do well. I'd make it through to, to zone and regional and, and state. And it wasn't until I actually came up against the kids who trained in those disciplines that I would usually get beaten. So I always sensed that I had a sort of a natural talent for it. Um, and I just liked the idea of it, particularly even though I think in high school I was most suited, 400 was my the event I was best at. That's what I used to make it through the rounds mostly for. I kind of liked the idea of the longer events because it's not over and done with so quickly and there's a bit of mental toughness required, um, you know, sticking at it when it gets tough. That that sort of thing always appealed to me. So I actually think I was, I was probably more suited to the shorter distances physically but possibly more suited to longer endurance events from a mental standpoint because I just like that idea of enduring and finding ways to 
push through when it got hard. And, and that's what I used to think about actually watching when I saw Hawaii first on, on television, thinking, ah, oh, you know, you must have to really be able to rationalize and, and reconcile in your mind what you're doing out there. And when it gets hard, how do you push through? You must have to have different strategies. And I used to have those thoughts before I'd even ever done a triathlon. And I had similar thoughts. We used to have there's a big sport in Australia, surf Ironman racing, the surf lifesavers. And I always wanted to do that, but I grew up nowhere near the beach. I, I grew up in Sydney, but sort of out west. So we weren't close to the beach. And but there was a couple of big races of those on television and I used to watch them, which ironically is where I got my nickname from, one of the surf Ironman athletes. His name was Jonathan Crow, and apparently I look like him, so I got the name Crowy. But um yeah, the same thing. I used to watch those events and think these guys and girls are amazing. I mean, these events are long. They're still fast. They're challenging. Um, so I think I was always sort of drawn to those events. And when my soccer career ended, I just started college or university. I had a part-time job laboring for a builder. I hurt myself. Uh, I had to. I had got a hernia. I had to have it operated on. I had about six months off all sports. And I came home from the university bar drunk one night, and my mum, <laughs> my mum who left out meals for me every night came down and just said you know you used to be so fit all the time I think you need to get back into some sort of exercise you need a tonic and it's funny that she said that because I'd been thinking I'd been getting restless I was naturally an active person and that enforced layoff even though you know you, you make the most of it and you go out with your uni mates and I was I was getting restless I wanted to be active I wanted to do um just do something sporty again I'd been thinking about it yeah and then I had that conversation with my mum and then the next morning I got up and went for a run a 5k run and it's the one thing I knew how to do having played soccer so that was my introduction I started running every second day um, I'd played water polo so I got back into the swimming and we used to have a lot of events they're now called aquathons we used to call them biathlons swim runs and I think I did six or 12 months of those before I ever did a triathlon um, most surf clubs most beaches had them every weekend it was like they ranged from 300 meter swim and 3k run to a uh, uh, could have been a, a 1k swimmer, a 1500 meter swimmer, and a 10k run. They're all different distances, and often they would switch the order up as well. They could be um, swim, run, or run, swim, or often they were swim, run, swim. Um, and that sort of lit my fire in the sport. I, yeah, it sort of um, really got me interested in it. I, I was loving those biathlon events. And my best mate at uni was a, he was a very accomplished cyclist. Who, who used to do some of these races with me. And I, and I know he used, he used to do triathlons for cross-training in his off-season. And I was always asking him questions about triathlons. And he said, mate, it sounds like you got the swim and the run sorted out to some degree. Why don't I just help you get a bike? And, and that's how it started really for me. I just, he helped me buy a bike out of what we used to call the trading post, which was the, the classifieds, the newspaper. And I think I bought the bike on the Thursday and did my first triathlon on the Sunday. And yeah, never looked back, just loved it from the first, very first race. And that first race was when you were 20? About 20 or 21, yeah. And uh, it was a sprint distance race, actually very close to where we live now. It's about 10 kilometres from here. And I mean, I just had BMX pedals on the bike and cross-training shoes. I didn't have clip-in pedals or any of the bells and whistles, but... I think I got third or fourth. I raced, so I was never a junior. I, I was in the 20 to 24 age group. And I think I finished third in my age group in that first race. And yeah, I just, I'd been bitten by the, by the triathlon bug. And 
remember driving home thinking, oh, I could have done this differently. I should have done that. I could have done this and just couldn't wait to sign on for the next one. Coming back to your youth days playing soccer, were you very academic? I know you have a degree in physiotherapy, but did you apply yourself in school as much as you did to your sports when you were growing up? I I wasn't as academic as my brother. He was naturally academic. He's very smart. He's got a PhD in chemical engineering. I got a good mark in high school, but I had to study hard to get it. So, um, you know, in the last two years of high school, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, and I actually got some good advice from one of my teachers who said, well, you should work hard and study hard. So at least you get a great mark and it doesn't limit your options when you do figure it out. So that's what I did. And I got a pretty decent mark in, in, in what we call the HSC, the high school certificate and went in to do, actually, I initially wanted to do physiotherapy and then changed my mind at the last minute. And I followed my brother into engineering. Um, he was a chemical engineer, but I, I went and did environmental engineering and hated it from the first week, but had to finish the first year of the course, then tried to transfer back into physio. But the entrance mark then jumped above what I'd got in my HSC. So I went and did a year of science, majoring in anatomy and physiology, and then transferred into physio. So um, yeah, I I took the long way around, but got in. Interestingly, I had a chat to Magnus Ditliff this year um, in Samarin, and he's a chemical engineer. So um, he's a... I think it's the new breed of triathlete. I guess, well, I shouldn't say the new breed. Even in my era, there were some well-educated triathletes running around, but it seems to be a lot of this current generation are, uh, are pretty academic as well, So, which is good to see. And a lot of people going down the route of numbers, like engineering, full of numbers. Must be important for, yeah. like, you know, analysis of your performances, analysis of your training, you know. Yeah, for sure. And it's one of the big changes that I've noticed the last five or eight years different training platforms and software coming in and obviously the wearable technology tracking all the metrics from heart rate to power. And of course we have, we have power, but I just think there's a lot more things now and, and I kind of like it. I mean, I don't, I don't think you should ever be paralyzed with the numbers, but if you know what they mean and they help you go faster, well, I'm all for it. That's, that's the end game. It's about getting, being a better athlete, being quicker. So yeah, I know a lot of the, the current athletes, I know the Norwegians are very scientific. But it's great. That's the next evolution of um, of the sport and understanding the science of actually what's going on physiologically in our bodies when we exercise at a certain level. Um, everyone's always known about training zones, but I think they apply it probably the best um, of, of a lot of athletes, of a lot of generations. Um, I don't think the metrics or the data is a bad thing if, if you know exactly what it's telling you and you know how to use it. When did you realize that you had a talent for triathlon? Well, I progressed quite rapidly. I mean, within 12 months, I was offered a professional license by Triathlon Australia. And I got that on the back. I did a, it was a big duathlon. It was in winter here. And I think I finished third or fourth. But two of the guys in front of me had been world duathlon champions. It was a big race. It had decent prize money. And and after the race, the president of Triathlon Australia said, you know, if you're going to be entering in the elite or open category, you probably need to get a a pro license. And that was, I guess, when the sport really started... um, getting a bit more structure around, I guess, international competition and just how, um, I guess, as, as all sports grow up and evolve, um, you know, the amateur side of it, the professional side of it, they evolve. And and at that point in time, I think triathlon had just been admitted into the Olympic Games. So they were trying to get a bit more structure in and around how professional licenses are handed out, how international competition would roll out. 
so I was offered a pro license and and then I was offered a start in my first ever IT World Cup race. Um, they call it, what do they call it now, WTS, World Triathlon Series Races now, and which was in Sydney actually around the Opera House. And um, so I considered probably that my first ever pro race. That was in October 1995 and it was a cast of thousands. I think there was 115 pro men all dived off the pontoon and some of the biggest names in the sport, superstars were in the race. And I had a good race. I finished eighth. So that's when I sort of realized that I, I I felt I had a natural talent for the sport. Or, I mean, some of the guys in that race were multiple world champions. Some went on to be Olympic gold medalists, world champions in all distances. And they were sort of household triathlon names. And, I mean, I remember that day. Well, I finished eighth, but I was only four seconds from fourth spot. So I almost got on the podium and yeah, I just thought, wow, I, I seem to have a a talent for this. But like all young athletes, I was very inconsistent. So I could I could turn it in a result like that or I could very easily be 35th next week. So it was it was actually funny. I did I did that race and then I didn't get offered a, a WTS or an ITU World Cup start for 12 months. And in the next one, which I did get offered, which was in Auckland, New Zealand, I finished fourth. So I, I actually bettered the result. But yeah, after that, it was just up and down. Like I think you see with a lot of younger athletes, um, you know, you show the physical potential, but sometimes mentally you don't understand the things that you've done previously that have helped you get those results. With lacking a bit of experience, you, you tend not to know how to manage yourself in race week or in your taper, making some silly decisions in the race as well, tactically, which are all things you just learn with experience. I think there's a lot of things that contribute to inconsistency. Um, inexperience is one of them and just physically you're still developing you haven't got the and it's impossible to have the aerobic conditioning of someone who's been in the sport five or ten years longer um there's just no shortcuts even you look at christian and gustav now i mean they've been in an elite pathway and program for over 10 years so you know that sort of world-class conditioning aerobic conditioning doesn't happen overnight and yeah so i i you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that oh yeah I knew I was going to go on to be a world champion but I did show at big races that you know, I could I could hold my own um, and certainly had a lot of finishes between 4th and maybe 12th or 15th in those races, but equally I could be 35th as well. Um, so, yeah, um, I felt that more than anything, I just knew that I really liked the sport. I loved the challenge of it and I had a passion to train. I, I didn't mind the hard grind. I loved the process of, you know, being a race and then sitting down afterwards and thinking, okay, what actually happened there, trying to dissect it figure out what were the what were the areas of weakness, what were the strengths, um, you know, how was the last training block. That whole thing, I just really enjoyed that whole process. Um, so, yeah, for me it was more about that in the beginning than aspirations of being a world champion. I just had aspirations of being the very best I could be and I, I thought who knows where that could end. I, I'm not going to put limits on it. I'm not going to say I'm going to be here or there, but I have a passion for this. I, I love the challenge of it. Uh, I love the training. I love the process, and let's just let's just immerse ourselves in that and see what happens. So that that was really the mindset or the the thinking behind it in the beginning. You had some great results across sprint and Olympic distance racing. So what was the catalyst or the reason for deciding to step up to middle and then eventually long distance racing? I did my first half Ironman in 1997, and it was actually I I just finished fourth in that World Cup race in Auckland in November before. On the basis of that result, I got invited to train with the national team. And some of my idols were there on that camp. So I'm training with them. And 
one guy who took me under his wing a little bit was Greg Welsh. And, you know, in one of the trainings, I was hanging off his every word. He, he was probably the reason I got into the sport. So, you know, one of the things he said to me was the great athletes don't pigeonhole themselves. They're versatile. They're consistent. He was always just saying things and I was just soaking it all in. And, you know, he said, you don't want to limit yourself to one distance or the other. You want to be versatile. And actually, they all go hand in hand if you train properly. So it was a really good education for me being in that camp around those sorts of athletes. And I actually thought, you know what, I'm, th- there was a big half Ironman. I'm going to jump in and do it. So I did it. And uh, it was a, a two or three hour drive from Sydney. I only entered the day before. Um, drove out there, had, had not organized accommodation. Just drove my car right up to the transition and thought I'm just going to sleep in the back of the car. Um, funnily enough, that's where I met Belinda Granger. And she was racing and she saw me in the car and she, it was, it was, this race was at a, a big reserve. It was like a campground and there was some cabins there and she was in a cabin with some of her training partners. She said, we've got a spare bunk bed. Why don't you come in and sleep? Um, and we actually both went on to win the race the next day. And yeah, I loved it. It was a, definitely a different challenge because I'd only ever done like much shorter races, um, enduros, triple super sprints, uh, sprint distance and Olympic distance. So stepping up to the half was Felt like a big challenge, although I've always felt it's it's quite similar to an Olympic distance race. And I beat some good some good guys, some guys who'd had top 10s in Hawaii that day um, and just really enjoyed it. I thought it was interesting. It was, yeah, again, it was just a lot longer. So you had more time to think about things and more time to talk yourself into or out of something. Um, so I saw the... I saw how mindset and mentality came into it in these longer races. And that sort of appealed to me a little bit, but... But yeah, I was mainly doing Olympic distance races at that point and really enjoying it. But I'd, I always filled, well, not filled my schedule, but had a sprinkling of half Ironmans in my schedule when I was in Europe, when I was in the US. And I did quite well at them. You know, I think leading up to the first ever 70.3 Worlds in 2006, up until that point, obviously, there wasn't like a, a series with a, a, a designated world championships at the end. It was more just a sprinkling of half Ironman races that some of them had some good history and prestige and they're the, they were the ones that you would go and do had great prize money and I I didn't do many probably only one or two a year but I, I don't think I lost one for three or four years and so when that first world championship was announced I thought well that that's probably going to be a good race for me to do um, but also I was still toying with the with the short course and the ITU side of the sport at that point because our high performance manager in Australia had sort of planted a seed in my mind saying you know you should possibly try out for the Beijing Olympics um we think you'd be good on that course it's going to be hilly it's going to be hot and I just won a couple of the biggest Olympic distance races in the world the year before um the lifetime fitness race in Minnesota which was an invitation only race at the time it was the highest prized person in the history of the sport um and you, all the ITU superstars were there as well as the non-drafting superstars and it was a great race it was a it was a hard race to get into it was invitation only but it was just a great weekend to be a part of I was lucky enough to win that race in 05 so the seed was planted that potentially I might want to think about um trying out for Beijing and and it interested me I mean I definitely the sport and the races that I'd seen growing up were 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 not in the Olympics it was Hawaii um, races like Chicago on television I saw that in Australia St. Croix Alcatraz I remember seeing, I think it was either the London or the Windsor Triathlon on television in Australia. It wasn't unusual to see some triathlons on TV in Australia because 
we had some Australian triathletes doing amazing things like like Welshy, like McKeeley Jones, Jackie Gallagher, winning races all over the world. So the sport used to get some mainstream media and it wasn't unusual to see some big events on TV. So um, And the races that I'd seen on TV were the races that I dreamed about doing. Um, and, of course, then the Olympics came into the sport and, and I thought, why not if I, I get invited and there was an opportunity there? But it was very political. Um, and I won't go into detail, but, yeah, I, I sort of – I had my own sponsors at the time and it was hard to – not that I want to sound like a mercenary, but – there were very strict uniform guidelines, what you could and couldn't wear in the ITU. And, you know, I'd made the Australian team to go to the ITU World Champs a couple of times and then through no fault of anybody's, I, I got sick in 2002 when I was on the I was on the team or actually it was the train-on squad to go to the Manchester Com Games. And it was a squad of six or seven and they were going to um, do a final selection down to a team of three men, three women. And I got sick. I got the chicken pox. Uh, which was nobody's fault, and I understood that meant I couldn't be in the program or in the pathway, so that's why I went to America. Um, I had to find something else to do, so I went to America and loved the racing there, sort of had really good success, was able to attract sponsors, and and then by the time I went back to the ITU style, yeah, there was those friction points of not being able to wear sponsors' logos. And Anyway, I still tried to negotiate through that, um, but in the end, it just became untenable. So I just made a decision. It was September... August, September 2006, when that pathway, that door seemed to close on me. I'd already qualified for the inaugural 70.3 World Champs by winning St. Croix earlier in the year, so I thought that's what I'll do. Um, and that was always in the back of my mind as being my major race for that year anyway. The the lure of going to the Olympics certainly interested me and, and took me off that path momentarily. Uh, but then with everything that went on and I'd qualified. My training had been more designed towards the 70.3 World Championships in Clearwater, Florida. So I just followed through with that initial plan and was lucky enough to win that race. So that was my first world title, a very special uh, memory. And then on the back of that victory, qualified for, for the Ironman World Championships the next year in 2007. So I thought, well, there's no, I guess there's never going to be a better time to go. I was 33 years of age. So I thought I, I, it's probably it's probably now or never. As much as I'd been a pro athlete for over a decade at that point, you know, on different circuits, mainly short course circuits, my dream had always been Hawaii from when I first saw the race in the late 80s on television. So, yeah, I, I finally after more than 10 years, I was able to, you know, fulfil that dream of getting there. And, and, yeah, so I went there for the first time in 07. And came second. Yes, had a very good race on debut, learnt plenty which some of the things you can only learn through racing. And, yeah, it was a very good, very good experience and a great memory looking back on it. Um, possibly one of the fittest I've ever been, I think, turning up on the Big Island, but just didn't have the experience to attack it. Um, there were a lot of unknowns for me. So had more of a conservative mindset and came up against Macca, who I think probably had one of the best races of his career. It was, his, I think, sixth or seventh crack at Kona, and he had cracked the code, I think, that year. Um, so, yeah, he, he took the title and I was able to, to get onto the podium. So a very good memory for me and, and learned, learned so much that I immediately took into my preparation for the following year. If we look at the following year, you won in 2008, you won in 2009 and again in 2011. But was it harder to win in 2008, coming in having been the silver medalist the previous year, or in 2009 as the defending champion? That's a very good question. I think 
when you finish second on debut, there's really only one spot to get that you kind of feel people will accept as a pass mark. Um, and I kind of, I didn't, I didn't think that I had to win to get a pass mark. I just thought so long as I perform up to the level I know I'm capable of, and, and I felt I was a better athlete, maybe not quite as physically fit in 08, but definitely mentally understood the race and what was required a lot more um, and was in great shape as well. And the conditions, I think, that was of all the years I raced, I think 08 was the windiest year, and I think that suited me on the bike. Um, I want to say I was fifth or sixth off the bike that year and really only had the Uber bikers in front of me. There were no big groups on the bike that year. We were all in groups of ones or twos. Um, but, yeah, I just, I mean, looking back, it looks like that, yeah, I mean, I've improved and got got the top spot on the podium. And, and in hindsight, that's probably what happened. It probably was a, a bit, well, it definitely was a better performance only because I just knew how to execute better within the race. But I certainly didn't, I, I felt the pressure that I knew there was now expectation externally and there's no escaping that. And if I don't win or get second, people will probably think that you've regressed or, but my mindset was more around just that was white noise that was on the periphery. What are the things that I need to do to get that race performance that I'm looking for? And that's really my whole mindset was tied up in and around those things. But then fast forward another year, certainly I felt the pressure again because from the minute I won in 08 at the press conference immediately afterwards, it was one of the first questions, you know, only three men have ever defended. It hasn't happened for a decade. Um, you know, what are you going to do differently? And it just became the focus of every press conference, every interview. Um, and I, I, I just took it on as something that not, not to, not because everyone was talking about it, but it was one of those times in my career. It was just, this is what I want to do to differentiate myself from others. And also just to prove to myself, um, am I the athlete that I think I am? That's one of those moments in a career where you get a chance to prove to yourself. You know, I never felt the need to prove anything to anyone else. I, I felt a big pressure to perform, to pay back the people in my immediate circle who had helped me, training partners, coaches, sponsors, all those people. I just really... Um, I always felt a pressure to perform because I, I wanted to repay them. And you know what? Not that I had to. I think they they were repaid just by seeing that I was putting in every effort to do that. That's what made those, you know, those supporters happy. But um, you know, 09 was one of those opportunities that comes around every now and again, not too often, where you get to do something that not many people have done. So yeah, it became a big focal point for me. Certainly felt the pressure of it, really wanted to do it. You know, only you know, at the time, Dave Scott, Mark Allen and Tim DeBoom had done it in a 30 or 35-year history of the race. Um, so you, you definitely want to add your name to that list. And I felt a pressure internally to do that because I felt I was good enough to do it. But the pressure came because I thought, you know, I need to make smart, disciplined decisions. Otherwise, I won't do it. It's not, it's not a question of physical ability anymore. It's management, time management, discipline those sorts of things. And, I mean, we had our second child, Austin, that year as well. And, I mean, I went on to defend the title and he was six months old. I mean, that was a, that was a phenomenal year for our family just on the, from a personal standpoint, um, let alone the racing side of it. But professionally, it was very satisfying to, to defend the title and add your name to that list. And it's one thing to win it, especially if you're one of the favourites to one of the so-called um, up-and-comers and people to beat. 
you know, that's what you are until you close the deal. And then things change because now you're not just someone who has the potential to win. You are actually someone who can win. And people now start factoring their game plan and their race strategy around you and game planning against you. And you carry that weight and that pressure and it's different pressure. Um, so, yeah, I think 08, I think I handled the pressure well to, to sort of solidify a great performance from the year before and show it wasn't a fluke. 09, slightly different scenario, but still very satisfying to defend the title. Um, and then doing the double in 2011, winning the Ironman 70.3 and the World Championship. We thought we might get that again this year. But what did it take to do that? I, I we skipped over 2010 as well briefly. I don't know if you want to touch on that. But, you know, looking at 2011, you came back in and you won again, but you also did it on the double. Yeah, so 2010, I will touch on it. I got fourth and I probably needed that. I, I didn't have a bad race that day, but a couple of things happened tactically in the race. And, and also it was about the time where technology was coming in. But prior to that, I mean, we, we sort of turned up with, almost road bikes, but just put aero bars on the front of them. They weren't the, the super time trial bikes you see now that are not UCI legal. You know, the bikes these days are amazing. They're built specifically for time trialing. They don't have to conform to the regulations of the UCI. And um, But that sort of all started about 09, 2010. And, you know, there was a suggestion that it was maybe marketing. Are these bikes really as good as everyone says? And they actually were. You had to get in the wind tunnel and do the testing. But aerodynamics was now the game was changing and we see it we see triathlon pivot and evolve and turn and change and like any sport you've got to change with it so yeah it was it was an important year for me to to get up to speed it wasn't just about out training and outworking everybody else you had to you had to maximize and check a lot more boxes now with equipment um, people were starting to get to get in the wind tunnel bike position was coming a bit more important you know when I first went to Kona Actually, the first four years I raced there, I didn't wear an aero helmet. It was just a road helmet. Didn't even realize it was a huge disadvantage until I got in the wind tunnel the first time. Um, our race suits were floppy. You had your zipper undone. They were flapping around. We worked out that they needed to be fitted. Sleeves were quicker. Things were changing. So so 2010 was important that I, I, you know, I jumped on board with that and came back the next year with different equipment but also a different mindset to be to change my tactics a little bit. I was known as the guy who would swim in the front group very close to the front and then just do whatever it took on the bike without overdoing it, stay close to the front and then try and win it in the run. And that had that had won me three world titles. But it's satisfying to change and, you know, not many athletes can win in a different way. So those two world championships in 2011, I think, two things to answer your question, what, what allowed it to happen well, the first one was what I just mentioned, a change in mindset and equipment. And the second one was a change in scheduling or scheduling. They they brought the 70.3 worlds before Kona. So it made it possible and feasible to do the double. Um, as we saw this year, because of the pandemic, it reverted back to the old way, which it had been for the first three or four years, which was 70.3 worlds after, which is tougher. It's a tougher, a tougher ask, I think, with the travel and recovery, particularly if you've done really well in Kona. That three weeks in the middle evaporates very quickly. Um, but I think those things are, are allowed it. But most noticeably for me, just a mindset of I'm not going to just wait on the bike. I'm going to make my own moves on the bike. And in Vegas, I think I was second or third off the bike there in that race. Um, I think I hit the run course. I came out of T2 in second, outright second, with only Chris Lieto uh, a little ways ahead. 
And the same thing happened a month later in Kona. I just, I thought as soon as the first person makes a move on the bike, I'm going with them. And it was Liato again at the airport. He he rolled up the road. So I just tried to bridge across. Um, and I did. It took me about, I don't know how many, a long time to get to sort of get about 20 meters off the back of him. But when I looked back, there was only two other athletes with us and the front group had gone. It had disappeared. There was a front group. Of, when, when, when Chris attacked, the front group was about 10 or 15 strong. And when we made the turn at Harvey, there was only four of us together and we had like five-minute lead. So um, so those races, I mean, all, all your victories are satisfying for a different reason. And sometimes even your, your, your podium finishes, whilst not a victory, are satisfying because you performed well. And you can see the really great things about that performance that maybe are not apparent on the outside. But those those two races were very satisfying, yeah, because I just... I felt like I, I dictated the race and, and, and I raced it the way I wanted to race and, um, and still was able to close both of them off. I think I ran a one, a one ten in Vegas on a, on a really hilly course on a brutally hot day. And I remember taking the lead about eight or nine K into it. And, and I ended up with, I got to about a two or a three minute lead with still six or seven kilometers to go. So I just, I just came right off the gas because I knew I had Kona coming up in four weeks. So, but I still ran a one ten, I think, or a low one eleven, on a really hilly course. So, I, and and that gave me confidence that I was in good shape, and I also knew I didn't go too deep into the well either. So, um, very very satisfying performances they were, um, and yeah, just for different reasons. I think as you mature as a person and as an athlete different aspects of a performance appeal to you so yeah I just I thought they were very mature experienced and just classy performances that I still yeah remember fondly you mentioned quite a lot about mindset and uh, and <clears throat> tying it into performance and about the mental game add into that discipline consistency self-belief how did you harness all of those aspects to deliver such world-class performances because it isn't just one thing and we haven't even touched on your family mm. balancing that whole thing of traveling Lucy being homeschooled, Austin being born in 2009. How do you get the whole thing right to be able to just deliver those world-class performances? And as you say, classy performances. You need a lot of good people around you. Could have I been a, a good athlete if I had never met my wife? Probably. Would have I had the career that I had without Neri? Definitely not. You need just an anchor emotional support she didn't start off as a triathlete and actually only ever did a handful of triathlons she was always a sporty person but she got to know the sport through me um, and she understood the sport quite well but she was what she did know very well was me she was an expert in me she knew the things that I needed to hear or do she also knew the sport well her advice was always amazing on the personal side of things but also on the professional side of things my manager or people I was working with advisors, we could have conversations around Neri and she always had really good input. You need good people around you. And that's probably the one thing I had consistently my whole career. Um, you, of course, need some physical gifts, which I think a lot of people at the top level of any sport have, but you need to maximise those. So you need a work ethic. You need to combine it with the mindset and understand how you are different and how you differentiate yourself from the competition. And part of that for me wasn't even about thinking of the competition. It was more me. What are the things that I need to do? And, and first, first and foremost, I think, is understanding why you're doing something. Like, why, why was I in the sport? 
And simply because I liked it, I was passionate about it, it pushed me and challenged me. And I had a, I made a commitment to myself on the, that very first race I told you about when I just had the cross training shoes on was to maximize every bit of potential I had. I was committed to getting the most out of myself wh- wherever that ended. And that was a commitment and a mindset that I had on day one and that I carried through all 25 years. And I was true to that. I always wanted, and of course, the parameters and the metrics and the, the framework changes, but that fundamental idea of checking all of the boxes every day was always there. Um, of course, I think as you grow and mature as a person, your motivation changes as well. Certainly becoming a husband and a father changed me and motivated me. I mean, I don't know how I won what I did with the family. I mean, I look at the Norwegians now and some of the other little uh, teams, and, and I love where the sport's gone with the professionalism, but, you know, I listened to one of the interviews that the Norwegian coach um, he said, oh, I've told the I've told the boys if they have a girlfriend, there'll be a consequence to their training and, you know, all these other things in life. And, and I had that. I had a full balanced life the whole time because of Neri. I had my all three of our children throughout my career. They came on the tour. They lived in Boulder with us, came to Kona. We juggled all of that and found a really nice balance the whole time. But certainly I was motivated by what my wife had given up. She loved her job, her career. She's very family orientated and we had to live away from home six months of the year. That was a big sacrifice for her. Um, My oldest daughter is very social, like my wife, and homeschooling was harder for her. So I saw how hard that was. So it was very plain every day. I could see the sacrifices the people around me were. So I was very motivated to always do the most, not only on race day, but every day leading up to race day when it actually counts to push myself, to get the most out of myself. And it wasn't, you know, people say it must be hard to motivate yourself. Some days you are tired and it's very difficult to get your body moving, but it was never hard to motivate because I knew what the people around me had given up or sacrificed. And not to say we didn't have a great life. Mary loved our life. She loved our life in Boulder. We had great friends there who we still have there and we'll always travel back there. But it's not without its sacrifices like anything. So that's certainly, I think, that element of, what drives you if you know what it is i mean why you're doing something and and you know you hear people say all the time what's my why and and i think that's what they're talking about fundamentally what is it that motivates you every day to push through it's important to know that for a couple of reasons the first one is to weather the storms because they're coming um you know they're coming thick and fast it's it's about you know riding the wave when when you know things are going well and 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 battening down the hatches and weathering the storm when they're not and it's not a matter of if there's a storm coming it's it's when and how often so understanding you know when the alarm goes off and you're dead tired and you've got to go and do a workout before university why am i doing that understanding why you're missing christenings weddings family get-togethers understanding why it makes it easier to make those sacrifices and to push through when it gets tough. Um, once you know the why, the, the what and the how I think falls into place. What What is specifically your goals, short and long-term, and we all have those, and your long-term goals are more your dreams and your aspirations and your short-term goals are the stepping stones or the lily pads along the way that you just want to hit and check off. And the how is the plan. Well, I think that, you know, get a few good people around you and you can work that out pretty easily too. Um, 
so that that you know that for me that's the first part of mindset but the second part is also um you know this whole idea of the mind body connection how how can we see athletes and hear about athletes and we've all trained with athletes or heard of athletes who just set the world on fire in training but can't quite execute to that level on race day what is it is it a nervousness and anxiety um who knows it could be all, a lot of those things um but to sort of get to that point where you can execute and perform when it matters most yeah there's a few strategies that i, I definitely used one of them was visualization i mean i was lucky early in my career i I came across a sports psychologist and she gave me some strategies in a, like a one-hour conversation that I've used every day of my career. One of them was that most successful athletes use visualization. And the more specific the visualization, the better. That's why athletes go to a place to train before they race there. So they can, you know, if you're on the big island, you know what the humidity feels like. You, you can smell the frangipanis. You, you know, you can close your eyes and take yourself away to that place and visualize being in the race in your training sessions or in a quiet moment. So she said, that's a good strategy. And that worked for me. I was able to very quickly in the midst, of, I could be here in Sydney in a, in, a, in a swim session, but think I'm swimming in the race in Kalua Kona. And I'm in amongst the melee. I'm in the front group. I'm trying to push to the front of it, trying to position. So that, that helped me a lot because then in races, everything felt more familiar. It wasn't as overwhelming and as daunting. But also the big thing for me was that, you know, thoughts, feelings, and actions are connected. The mind-body connection is strong. Um, it's very hard to disconnect those things and you can be in great physical shape. And she said to me, and, and it made complete sense to me, um, probably because I was doing a physio degree at the time, but she said, you know, as athletes, you guys train two, three or four times a day working on your physical development and your physical progression. She said, what are you doing for your mental progression and your mental development? Like at some point, hopefully you're going to be in a spot physically where you're good enough to win races. Are you mentally going to be in a good enough spot to close the deal out as well. So that made sense to me. You don't want to just work on your, your, you know, those two things should go hand in hand and they do. So yes, the thoughts, feelings, action, action thing made sense to me. She said, you know, some people are more positive, some are more negative. We're all on a spectrum. Um, she chatted to me a little bit and she said, you know, I think you're more on the optimistic side, but I get a sense that you're, because I was always talking about the athletes I looked up to with her. And, you know, she said, it's, it's good to have a healthy, respect for your competition but she said at some point if you're racing these people you need to compartmentalize these things and be able to do the things you need to do to get the best performance that you can get because if you're physically on par with them which I'm hearing from some of your training sessions and I'm hearing from some of the coaches and I'm just wondering why in the races you know you're not you're not getting the performances that you think because I'd said to I don't I think I'm underperforming and you know, she gave me some great advice. She just said, you know, you got to frame things differently. She said, we'll have a default mindset. We, all of us, you put us in a certain situation, we're all going to interpret the information we're getting differently. She said, some people are more just can see the positive in, in it, even if it's, she said, there might be a hundred reasons why this race on the weekend, you might not win, but there could be 10 legitimate reasons why you could win. So you need to hang your hat on those 10 and focus only on those 10 and make those 10 reasons of priority and that kind of made sense to me um she said it's 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 a, about the way you frame conversations with yourself like the example she gave me was you know i've got a big i've got a big race this weekend i'm racing some of the best triathletes in the world man it's going to be so hard she said that that's one way you could frame a conversation with yourself or you could say i've got a big race this weekend i'm racing some of the best triathletes in the world 
what an amazing opportunity to see how this last training block's been and see how much I've closed the gap on them. Uh, she said, it just depends on, and, and she said, thinking a certain way doesn't just happen. You've got to practice it. And the visualization thing was easy for me. This was a little more difficult. I had to practice more, but I got, I got to a point where in any situation, I could see a positive outcome still. Flat tire, fix it, get back in the game, you're not out of it. I could always um, see a pathway through or light at the end of the tunnel. So, And it made a difference. I think if you can see a pathway and, and see um, how something may play out, it's, it's, it's almost, I think, a lot easier to live it out. Um, you know, you hear, I think it was, is it Jan Fredino's conceive, believe, achieve? I mean, a lot of those cliches and, and those sayings are along those lines of um, you've got to think it up, then you've got to believe it can happen, and then you go out and do it. Thoughts, feelings, actions. I mean, it's pretty much what the what the psychologist said to me 20 years ago. Thoughts, feelings, actions. They're, they're three corners of a triangle, and they it's very hard to disconnect them. They're actually very strongly connected, um, and you need to get to a place where your first thought, your default thought is – a positive one or a good one. Um, you can see the positive or the good in a situation. You can see a way through. And that helped me a lot too. So I think that speaks to a lot of what you were talking about. I mean, you know, hard times in training, in racing, you see it as an obstacle and a, a terminal situation or you see it as a challenge. This is an opportunity for me to really test myself. And, and I got to that point where in the races, I wasn't scared of it being hot. I wasn't scared of it being cold. I wasn't scared of any particular athlete. I knew all of their strengths and weaknesses and respected all of them. But if I was the athlete who I thought I was, well, then I needed to go out and show that. Um, so that's part of the challenge. It shouldn't be easy. It should be challenging and you should see the good in that challenge and the positive in it and embrace it. You have an incredible capacity to go deep and to hurt, Croy. Yeah, well, I think it ties in everything we just talked about. I mean, mm. for me, part of... A, a good performance and a good outcome was not only on the times or, I mean, times are very dependent on conditions, they're dependent on equipment, they're dependent on a race dynamic. Performances are slightly different, but part of it for me was going a little further, pushing a little more into that uncomfortable, you know, space that's always there as an endurance athlete. You know, in these races, whether they're one-hour races, sprint distance, Olympic distance, at some point it's going to hurt. Um, and it's often going to hurt for a lot of it, pretty much from when the gun goes off in the short distance races. And 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 you need to come up with ways to push further into that hurt. And for me, I, no, I don't, I wanna, I'm not going to sit here and say I looked forward to the pain, but for me it was part of the challenge and I knew it was coming and I prepared for it. So I thought, what am I going to do? You know, in, in the bike or in the, in the marathon when it gets hard, well, so I had a few different strategies normally around mental cues or pacing, a couple of little boxes that I just repetitively checked off almost like a distraction from the pain. But there was always a lot of mental cues in there. I mean, technique, core, relax, turnover, just mantras that I would go over and over in my head. And um, and in the end, they almost become subconscious as well. You, you do those things without even doing them. But, um, yeah, I, I for me, the, the pain wasn't something that, I, I, yeah, I'm not going to sit here and say that I, I looked forward to it, but I didn't dread it. It was part of what I'd signed on for, and it wasn't unexpected. And you're in control of it. You can stop anytime you want. You can you can train as hard as you want to prepare for it, and then in the race when it hurts too much, you can stop. You can stop. It's a pain that you're in control of. I didn't see it as a, a pain or an illness that you see someone, you know, who has an illness in a hospital. That's out of their control. This is something we control as athletes. So 
you know, part of the business of being a professional athlete as well. You, you need to come up with coping strategies and way to push through it. And part of the preparation is training well to, to cope with the physiological demands of it as well. So, yeah, for me, it was never, I mean, I, yeah, I thought it was part of my job description to, to go deep. Hurt. Yeah, <laughs> if you're an insurance. Must be able to hurt. Yeah, that, that's your job. Yeah. Okay, so I'm really conscious of the time. I have a couple more questions and I'm going to rapid fire round at you and then I'm going to go into our audience questions. So what does a typical day look like for you now and do you train every day where possible? I try to still train every day. Some days I miss. Typical day is usually some office work early. I'm still very fortunate. I've got a lot of great sponsors or companies I'm a, a brand ambassador for. And a lot of those companies are not in the same time zone. So it's a little bit of office work early. Got a nice little coaching business going. So liaising with the other coaches, putting together content for the upcoming week, webinars, organizing Zwift rides. Um, like to be present with the family around breakfast time, getting getting the kids off to school. Very involved with them and their activities. Um, myself and one of uh, the other dads at my youngest daughter's school have started a little run club there. So we do a it's a little half hour. We play football. We play ultimate frisbee, and we do a few little running drills. It's more fun than actual running, but it's just, you know, running is the basis for a lot of sports. Um, and you know, you can give some good instruction drills to do tidy up running techniques, so kids can get more proficient at it, and um, then go off and do the sport that they love to do. And actually, some end up getting into running anyway. So I've started the little running club, coaching some of the kids' sporting teams as well, uh, help out coaching my daughter's, my youngest daughter's soccer team and her her flag football team. So, yeah, around the house and train, try to train, get on. I, I train indoors on the bike more now just because it's so time efficient. Um, and often, you know, I used to get out and like to ride early before the traffic, but now with all everything else going on, I sometimes I it might be 10 or 11 o'clock and I think I'll just jump on the bike for 60 minutes. So I often do that probably three or four times a week still getting on on Zwift. Been surfing. I like surfing. My my son, is a he loves surfing so I surfed a little bit growing up and um yeah so his his passion has rekindled one of my old passions which is which is fun so and they're also our kids were also in the local surf life-saving club so I do a bit of coaching down there I coach the runners down there and um so yeah the days are busy now that the events are back on I've had quite a few uh trips to different races this year I was one of the international team captains for the Collins Cup this year in Slovakia which was a lot of fun with Aaron Baker. Um, locking horns with Norman and Natasha, uh, Team Europe, and um, Dave and Julie Moss, who are the captains of the US team. And, and the captains, right, really uh, more of promotional and ceremonial role, but we had a lot of fun. Spent spent a lot of time at the bar, um, which was fun. Was the event ambassador at the recent 70.3 Worlds in Utah, so that was fun. Um, so you're getting to a lot of events this year. I was also an event ambassador for an ultra trail race earlier this year, and I did the 25K, but I might – might pull my finger out and do a bit of training this summer and step up to the 50k i've done a lot of training off road but i've never actually done a trail race that was the first one it was fun a lot of fun except to roll my roll my ankle a few times um but apart from that it was good so yeah there's plenty on i've got i've got got plenty on i'm still heavily involved in the sport which i'm eternally grateful for i mean i mean the sport owes me nothing i owe it everything it's given me such a great professional adult life i've made so many great connections and friendships, um, which are the things that you remember. And, you know, one of the highlights for me over in Utah was just 
having a few drinks with Rennie and Welshie, um, just catching up with people you've known for a long time and friendships you've made within the sport. So the sport has just given me, yeah, a wonderful life and I'm just very grateful to still be involved. It must be pretty cool when you're sitting in the bar with Rinny and, and Welchie, considering his win in 1994 was one of the reasons that spurred you to go to Hawaii. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think Greg, Greg Welsh, um, Brad Bevan, Miles Stewart on the men's side and, and on the women's side, McKeely Jones, um, Emma Carney, Jackie Gallagher, I think they inspired a generation of Australian triathletes. Um, but, yeah, Greg for me was a big um, – well, he was the the guy who won the race that I saw on television that got me into the sport and became a a mentor, an advisor, someone who took me under his wing. He was always a huge advocate for me. Um, ended up working for Oakley, who were one of my longest standing sponsors. Um, yeah, he's just a great, great friend. I consider him one of my closest friends. So, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, where life takes you and the connections that you make and and when I, you know, when I'm going to these races, it's one of the things I'm most excited about. Of course, I love to watch the races. I love to watch the current crop of superstars and the way they're just, you know, raising the level, raising the bar. You know, as someone who's a competitor and uh, who's a racer, watching the watching the races, you, you get so much enjoyment out of. But one of the main reasons I love going to these races is just meeting up with people like Greg meeting up with friends that's what I look forward to I really look forward to when I know I've got a trip on um we start messaging I start messaging so I'm going to see you shortly you better bring your A game so yeah they're they're things you look forward to the most yeah um in terms of relaxing and unwinding away from sport Crowy, what do you do do you have (laughs) I do sport away from sport no just family family is my main priority main commitment making sure our kids have all the opportunities that I had, you know, growing up. Um, do you do you see the same level of ambition in your kids as you had when you were growing up? Do you see that coming through now? Have they potential for an interest, a big interest in sport? Yeah, definitely. They're, they're all super competitive and just driven. And um, and and yeah, my wife was like that too. She's she's very driven and uh, motivated. Um, yeah, so I guess it was inevitable. The kids, uh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, as they say. So, yeah, they're, they're good. They're super competitive. Like, I'm always just rattling on our sports for fun, guys. Well, secretly, I'm hoping they win. And they're, they're even more competitive than me. I mean, I was just watching the, them and going, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they just did that. They're so competitive. But that's what I was like growing up. And um, I just like that they love sports. It's fun for them as well. Um, they, they, not only are they competitive, it's fun. They they love to play sports. And, of course, I'll be chuffed if they take up sports that I like. But in the end, I just like that they're involved um, in any sports. And I think when they're young, team sports are awesome for them. I think, you know, team sports are really good. They're fun. They're social. And, and they're, just, they're just good. They just teach you good lessons and how to be a great teammate, all of those things I think are important. I have two very random questions for you that we um, found when we were doing a bit of research on you. Um, you brought your son to a party twice on the one day. They were both the wrong parties. Yeah, you yeah, that's true. You, that down. You've done some great research. Yeah, well, that were kind of, well, it was my fault, but it was. I just flown in from the US. I was jet lagged. I briefly spoke to my wife as I was 
coming home from the airport, she said, you're taking Aussie to his party. The instructions are on the fridge where it's at. So I've just rolled into this party, <laughs> walked up to the front desk. It was in this place centre. And I said, I'm, I'm here for Billy's party. And I said, oh, it's Billy, isn't it? And he said, yeah, we're, we're here for Billy. So we said, we're here for Billy's party. And the lady said, oh, you're down. And she pointed where we're at. So we went down there and everything was set up. We were the first ones there. So we got in, introduced ourselves. Um, there's a few ball games. I'm getting involved with the kids, um, <laughs> eating some of the food. And I see some of the parents looking over, like strangely looking over. So I went over to Austin, my son, and said, mate, which one's Billy? And he said, oh, Billy's not here. I'm like, I thought this was Billy's party. <laughs> anyway, we've, I've walked over to the mum whose party it was, and it was actually a Williams party. It was Williams' party. So we were at the wrong party. That's not Billy. That's William. So <laughs> I know. So I'm there with a handful of fairy floss and a drink. <laughs> going, oh, sorry, we're at the wrong wrong party um anyway we slowly extricated ourselves out of that one and texted Neri and she she was at an athletics carnival with our eldest daughter and she said you need to call another mum I I told you the details wrong anyway our communication was terrible so then I I messaged one of the other mums saying oh what's the address of the party and just this ad address came through so I just drove to the address which was like five blocks away and I said to Austin my son oh it's all good mate we're only half an hour late doesn't matter so we've turned up rung the doorbell, the mum and who I presumed was Billy answered the door. My son didn't say anything. We've handed over the present, walked in, and it was a person from Austin's class whose party it was but not Billy's party. And so we've gone into the party. Austin, my son's taken his shirt off. He's jumped in the pool with the other kids. The dad whose son's party it was, he's brought me a hot dog and a beer. So I'm having a hot dog and a beer. and then. Austin comes over to me about 20 minutes later and said, this is not Billy's party either. And I'm like, what's going on? So I went over to the mum who had texted me the address and said, this is not Billy's party. And she said, no, Billy's party's tomorrow. And I'm like, you texted me the address. And she said, well, you just messaged and said, what's the address of the party? You didn't say, what's the address of Billy's party? Anyway, I was jet lagged. I was light on the details. They, they were very kind. They said, you may as well stay now. You've eaten half a hot dog and drunk half a beer. But I said, no, nah, Austin, we got it. This is embarrassing. Get out, dry yourself off. <laughs> Did you ever live it down with the parents of those kids going for the school pickup or future parties no, or anything? No. They, that was so funny. But that, that was that was years ago now. But, yeah, they would always say that that's the dad who keeps turning up at the wrong parties. He's a serial party crasher. So, yeah. I love it. And then the other dodgy question was, you were racing in the Long Course World Championships in Australia in 2006 and you raced on a Vegemite sandwich. Seriously, at this That's point, true, yeah. a Vegemite sandwich, yeah. first of all, yuck. And second of all, what were you doing with the Vegemite sandwich going into the Long Course World Championships? Yeah, I, well, Greg Welsh told me to do it. Okay, we have he to send said, this podcast to Welshy. Yeah, he, he told me to do it. He said that's what... They used to eat jam sandwiches and Vegemite sandwich and cut the crust off them. I'd never, at that point in my career, I'd never done a race longer than a half Ironman. And actually, I'd won the inaugural 70.3 Worlds the weekend before in Florida, and I flew home. That's and why I, I couldn't believe you were eating the bloody Vegemite sandwich. You were world champion going eating a Vegemite sandwich. I didn't know much about nutrition. Um, and we didn't know. It was, it, 
it wasn't like it is now where there's so much information out there and there's so many great companies who you know all about, you know, the things you need to do correctly to eat well, not only in the lead up to the race, but during the race itself. So well, she told me that's in the 80s and 90s, that's what they used to eat in, in Ironman races and lollies like jelly beans. And so I thought, oh, that's what I'll, I'll do. I'd never done a race longer than three hours and 45 minutes. And this one was a lot. It was it was a bit longer. It was a six-hour race. Um, yeah. Okay. We'll so forgive I, you. We'll forgive you. I bet yeah, you never no, made that mistake I, again. No, I didn't. It was the last time I ever did it. And it, it probably cost me. I ended up getting a silver medal, but I cramped up so bad. Torbjorn Simbali won the race. And um, he was such a strong athlete. He had a huge lead off the bike and I was running him down and I got within 10 seconds of him with five kilometres to run, but my legs just locked up probably because I hadn't taken salt, probably because I hadn't taken gels. And I remember at the start of that race, too, in transition, come down on race morning, I'm emptying my pockets out and all, a lot of the European athletes were just laughing. They're like, are you going on a picnic? Like, Because I had them all wrapped up in aluminium foil. I had all these things wrapped up. They're like, are you going on a picnic? They're like, you're packing a picnic lunch because they all had their gels taped to their top tube. And so, yeah, that hard lesson to learn. But I never made the mistake again. <laughs> and do you still eat Vegemite sandwiches? I do, actually. I, get, I, I make them for my kids for school lunches. Okay, we're going straight into the audience questions because I know we've been chatting for ages. First up. Jared Prendergast asks, how much energy and time did you put into your recovery and what kind of tools and practices did you do for this? Firstly, sleeping as much as possible and eating well. Um, I think that's the cornerstone of good recovery. And I was lucky I learned that through my uni degree um, as a physiotherapist. So you want to sleep, get a lot of sleep and get the right sort of deep sleep. And you want to put in uh, your diet. Or I, I don't like the word diet, your nutrition plan things that help you recover. So the building blocks of muscles afterwards, um, you want to rehydrate afterwards in the lead up to. So yeah, nutrition is important in the lead up to training, during training and immediately afterwards, um, fueling yourself the right way. So you have the right energy to complete the sessions and then putting in the right things to replenish afterwards. So sleeping and eating are the two main things. I was a huge fan of massage. I liked uh, usually a deep massage. That helped me a lot. I uh, felt it helped me with recovery and in, in the lead up to races or immediately after races, just a light flush. So deeper usually, but in taper week or post-race, a light flush. Um, ice baths, I like a lot, although a lot of people now say there's not a lot of research to support it, but I love them. They, they always made me feel good, particularly after long, hard runs. My legs, I wouldn't have the leg soreness if I had an ice bath immediately afterwards. I used to wear compression garments a lot at, at the end of long training days. Um, and also the blow-up compression boots I would wear in the evenings. And one thing that I think was a big recovery tool, but it's also a performance benefit, is just core strength and stability routine in the gym. I think when you move well, obviously there's a performance benefit. You're more efficient, so you can hold speed for longer. There's also an injury prevention benefit. I think when you move well, particularly in a sport with so much repetitive motion, potentially you can ward off injury. But also I think when you move well, you do less damage. So there's less recovery required. So I think a good core strength and stability routine checks a lot of boxes. And one of those is recovery. So that were my main recovery strategies. Okay. Our next question comes from Daniel McParland in the UK, who incidentally won Ironman Florida last week. He's had a great nice. season this year so far. Yeah, he did a great race. 
So his comment on Instagram was, Crowe is an absolute hero of mine. That race in 2011 is one of the all-time greatest Hawaiian performances. I can't wait to listen to the podcast. However, I'd like to know, after you took the lead on the run in any of the Hawaii victories, did you ever have any doubts or insecurities that you wouldn't be able to hold the pace? From the outside, the fans always assume that once you hit the front on the run, it's a done deal. But did you actually think that as well? That's a great question. Congratulations on your race in Florida. Um, you know what? I always, I think, paced myself well. It was one of my strengths. And I paced a lot mainly to perceived exertion. And I knew I could suffer a bit at the end too. So I, in my mind, I, I, I just thought if I can just get a few K from the finish, I'll be able to close the deal. So, And even in 2011, I made a little mistake running through special needs, not getting salt tablets, and I cramped up the last five or seven K, but I was still able to manage it and get to the end. It's a good question because when you're known as a runner and you hit the lead early in the race, there's kind of like pressure um, to close the deal because that's what you're expected to do. And I, every now and again, the thought would cross my mind. I'm not going to lie. I think every athlete has doubts and I was no different. I used to always think, wow, before the race, this was the perfect scenario that I dreamt of and now I'm in it. I better not balls it up. Every now and again, I had those thoughts. But again, with good mental training, I'd always just drag myself back to Rather than those random thoughts, just what can I do right now? Pacing, nutrition, mental cues. Pacing, nutrition, mental cues. And then I think, geez, it would be embarrassing if I lost from here. Your mind wanders. Pacing, nutrition, technique. Pacing, nutrition, turnover. So in the end, I think I got pretty good at just distracting my mind. And in the end, all we can do in any moment is the very most and give enough due diligence to the things that we need to think about. And um, but it's a great question because, yeah, no, the thought often would quote, I mean, I remember that race in 2005 where I won the quarter of a million dollars, um, possibly the biggest win of my career. It was on, it was the first, I want to say it was the first triathlon ever televised live on American TV. It was on NBC. And I remember hitting the front thinking it would be embarrassing if I didn't win from here. So I think you have those thoughts. Um, but yeah, you need to bring it back. and. I mean, in the end, our mind can talk us into anything or it can talk us out of anything. So you need to control it and just, yeah, um, again, find those 10, five or 10 legitimate reasons why you will close the deal, not the not the 100 why you, you might stuff it up. So um, I think in those situations, it was Daniel, wasn't it? It's, it's about controlling your mind, mental discipline in those situations. The great answer. Great question. Great answer. Next question comes from Stephen Lochnan, who didn't have the day that he really wanted in Kona this year, but I think he'll be back there. His question is, uh, back when you were training full time, were there ever small changes that you made in training which resulted in big improvements? First of all, Stephen, dust yourself off. Everybody has bad races. I mean, he got knocked off his bike. Sorry, he got knocked off his bike. Oh, is that what happened? Into oh. the race, but he continued. I have a great race report from Stephen on the. On the website, yeah, it wasn't his fault, but he he literally he dug deep and he hurt to cross the. Well, mate, that's actually better than winning. That's a mental toughness and a physical toughness that hats off to you, mate. That's an impressive effort. The sport is hard enough without those kinds of things happening. But I mean, again, I think that's why triathletes have always gravitated towards them because they don't mind a challenge. They don't mind sucking it up and getting it done. So. Um, no magic bullets, no secret recipes, consistency of work over time. But, yeah, you can make tweaks. I mean, as I got older, getting in the gym 
helped me a lot. So I talked about that core strength and stability routine that I used to do. And that was a, a constant my whole career from early on. You know, I was very lucky having studied as a physio and having some good friends who are physios. One of them said to me, he did an assessment on me one day. He said, you've got a very weak core. If you want to be a good triathlete, you need a strong core. So that was 25 years ago, um, more. Uh, so, you yeah. You have a six-pack, Roy. <laughs> it's more like a keg these days. But, um, you know, I think, Stephen, work on the core stability. I think that's a great investment of time when you are busy. You can set up a gym at home, which helps with compliance. You don't have to drive anywhere. All you need is like a yoga mat, a Swiss ball, a set of hand dumbbells, and there's maybe some stretch cords as well. There's a thousand exercises you can do. And I would do 30 minutes worth three or four times a week. Do them in the evening when you're watching TV. I think that's a good use of time. And then if depending on what age you are, if you're in your 30s, I would hit the gym for some actual lifting once or twice a week as well. And the rule of thumb with gym work is, if you haven't done it for a while or you've never done it, ease into it because you'll get sore and you don't want the rule of gym work is don't get sore. So build into it slowly. Work, maybe get maybe get an expert to help you because there's certainly exercises that are more beneficial to triathletes, where the strength gains in the gym translate into swimming, biking, and running. Things like inclined leg press, front and back squats, deadlifts, lunges, box jumps. So combined movements, faster movements, but you do them at different times, so you might need some expert help with that. And the main thing is always perfect technique. So when you get in the gym, perfect the technique with no weight before you bring the weight in, and then you end up building up to something like three sets of eight reps. Um, but technique is always key for a number of reasons. A, you don't want to get injured, and B, the body's very good at compensating and bringing in other muscles, and you're actually trying to isolate a muscle group and strengthen it. So technique's really important. So I would say gym work is its not such a little secret, but I think it's something you can do that will reap really good rewards. And if in doubt, always default to zone two or aerobic conditioning in the hills. Riding and running in the hills, even if it's just easy, will always help. Brilliant. I love it. Final question from our audience, and it's actually from Emma, who did a lot of the research, so I can't take credit for finding all of those dodgy questions. So Emma Porter mm. found an answer to a question where you mentioned your top three male favorite athletes of all time, but she would like to know who are your top three female athletes of all time mm. in any sport? That is a great question. Well, someone I really liked growing up just because she won all the time was Steffi Graf in tennis. Um, used to watch her play a lot. I just couldn't believe how consistent she was. Who else? Uh, modern day athletes. So I, I love Sam Kerr. She's an Aussie footballer. Um, of course, the Women's World Cup is coming up. And I want to say in Kona, I met an Irish triathlete who was the strength and conditioning coach of the physio for the Irish football team. Did they qualify? Yes, they did qualify. They did while I was away. But they did. Yeah. Sam Kerr. I'm a huge fan of her recently. I think she was voted the, uh, the the best female footballer in the world this year. I mean, she's just incredible. I think she's changed the game. And I've seen the impact of her with my my youngest daughter playing football. And, and when you go down to your local fields, or even my son who played rep football, there's as many girls playing the game now as there are boys. And I think it's a lot of girls, but Sam's, I guess, the most well-known. So I, I really love what they've done. Our, our Australian football team actually win a few games so um I, I follow them um so sam kerr who else um you know who else is just prolific I, i've got a few but 
someone over probably a five or eight year period, maybe 10 years, Katie Ledecky, the swimmer, just wins a lot. And someone who I'm just uh, more recently, Sydney McLaughlin, the 400 meter hurdler, um, just the most graceful and effortless running technique I think I've ever seen. And she did a time in the 400 meter hurdles that would have got her fifth or sixth in the 400 meter flat final. Um, just incredible. I think she's one of those athletes who's just generational, just sticks out from the, from everybody else. Um, so who else? I'm going to give you more than three. Um, a golfer, Kari Webb, an Australian golfer I liked. She put golfing on the map, women's golfing on the map in Australia. And I mean, when she was winning majors, you'd flick on the TV and there'd be women's golf on, which had never happened. So became a big fan of hers. Steph Gilmore, the Australian surfer, who's won, I think she just won her eighth world title in surfing, which is unheard of. Yeah, huge fan of hers. I mean, I love my surfing. So um, we've had a few good. Lane Beachley was good. She she won seven, but Steph's eclipsed her now. So yeah, that that's a good mix. There's a good mix of female superstars. Brilliant. Two more questions, and then we're done. What is your proudest moment of your whole sporting career? Um, You've probably been asked that a million times. Yeah, I don't know, you know. Um, I think the thing I'm most proud of now is when people come up to you in Kona or Utah and say, you know, I watched I watched you on NBC in 08 and I got into the sport after I saw that or you really inspired me to, to – I mean, as you know, Joe, you're at a lot of events. Our sport is amazing. Uh, vehicle for for changing lives, people changing their habits recreationally, and um, yeah. So I think I get more of a kick out of that. Winning races is amazing, of course it is, but it's kind of a self indulgent kind of pursuit. And uh, one thing I remember in oh nine when you talked about the oh nine victory, one of the fondest memories. And actually, that that's a good question because it just popped into my mind. And someone asked me this a long time ago, and I and I remember giving this answer. In 09, when I won the second one in Kona, one of the nicest memories I had was immediately afterwards. Well, not immediately after. You, you, you finish the race, you go to the medical, you go to drug testing, doping control, then you go to the press conference. And usually what happens is, what well, Nary and I used to go and get clicked my bike and my gear from transition. You know, you're now probably 11 hours on the race clock. Um, so people are starting to come in. We watched a bit of the finish. And then we usually go back to where we're staying. And that year we were staying down at Cuyahoe. Um, I was sponsored by the Sheridan. And the staff there knew I'd won and they organised a little party and invited a lot of people like my sponsors and friends, people who'd flown over, family who'd come to watch the race. And when Neri and I arrived, they were already there. And I remember just sitting around. Everyone was having a few beers just having a laugh and we were, we were all just going to eat. We were going to all head back to watch the last three or four hours of the race. And But I just remember thinking it doesn't get better than this. So that's probably my fondest personal memory. Just sitting around, everyone was there. One or two of the training partners who I trained with every day leading up to that race that year, my family, um, Neri's family, sponsors, just great friends. And we're just sitting out on this lanai. And just thinking, well, this is this is why, you know, for me that was as enjoyable a feeling as running across the finish line. Um, I saw what joy it brought everybody who had contributed and they had, all those people had in a big way or in a small way, 
contributed to my career either that year or in some way. And I just, I really wanted them to feel part of it. And, and I didn't have to say anything. They did. I could see they did feel part of it. And that made me happy. So that was a good memory. That's fabulous. Final question. When are you coming to Ireland? Love to come. You got to get me there. No I'm very problem. cheap. Very <laughs> cheap. I, I, I Guinness or two um, and a good time. Uh, so I love the Irish. I mean, every... I remember, I think it was 2014, I was the race ambassador at Ironman UK, which was in Bolton. That's where and I met I at, you first, I believe. Well, yes, that's I where I have that, a photograph that, of us. I should actually put that up and say where it started and where we are now. Yeah. Well, that's where I think, was I with you that night at the race hotel? And I'm, I sat down and there was a whole bunch of Irish triathletes and they were having dinner. I just sat down and started having a chat with them. So, yeah, no, I, I mean, the sport's exploding globally, but I see you guys have got a lot of. A lot of events so on. I'd love to come over. We have Ironman Ireland uh, the week before the Ironman 70.3 World Championships. So, you know, you could come over to court do and do the double. Like, come over and just have the crack. We might even get you to do the countdown for Iron Kids. Would I? I'd love to do it. I'll jump in with the kids. That's the best <laughs> part of the week. But if I come to Cork first, will I even make it to Finland the next week? I hope so. Yeah, you probably will. Well, I don't know, actually. You might have to come a week earlier so that you can get all the partying out of your system and then fly direct from Cork um, out to Finland. Croy, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. This is probably one of the longest podcasts that we've done. We might have to come back and, and have another chat again because there's just so much stuff I'd love to ask you. I only glossed over bits and pieces mm. to try and just get a flavour of you and a flavour of your career. So thank you so much. It's been a, a pleasure to have you on the show and I think our listeners will really love it. And hopefully I'll see you next year. We'll cross paths somewhere, no doubt. Uh, thanks for having me on. And thanks to everyone who's sending questions. They were great questions. And um, yeah, good luck. I hope to make it over to Ireland sometime. It'll be a lot of fun. And we'll chat again soon, no doubt. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can get in touch with any feedback or guest suggestions by emailing me on trytalkingsport at gmail.com. Don't forget to check out all of the great episodes over on the website. We have over 90 episodes now, so there's a huge catalogue of inspiration and motivation to choose from. You can follow all of our activities and podcasts on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and on Instagram. And if you have any feedback or guest suggestions, please be sure to get in touch. Until next time, thanks for listening. Stay safe, keep smiling, and remember, go look for fun and adventure in every day.